This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair, number 25, August 20, 1982. Sometime back, I discussed the fact that during the Civil War or the war between the states, after war was declared, some of the Midwest farmers sent food, famine relief, Mississippi and adjacent areas. And I pointed out that this kind of thing was far more common than people realize. I'd like to go into this a little more today. Early in the last century, the conflict of interest theory began to develop very, very rapidly as a result of the work of Hegel, a German philosopher, instead of believing in God and the harmony of interests, instead of believing, as Romans 8.28 declares, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Ultimate harmony was replaced with the concept of ultimate disharmony, the conflict of interests. And so history began to be viewed as race, religious, and class conflict, total war. Not surprisingly, the age of total warfare was ushered in by the same spirit that created Hegel. With the French Revolution, we began to see the beginnings of total war. And in 1860, here in this continent, Total war in the modern era entered into high gear. There's no mistaking about it, it was total war. In fact, European military leaders, the German high command and others, studied the tactics of southern and northern military leaders. Southern guerrillas, northerners like Sherman in particular, and Sheridan, in order to appreciate more fully and learn the tactics of total warfare. And yet in the face of that, there was far more fraternization and friendliness between the two armies than most people are ready to recognize. For example, and I'm quoting from James M. McPherson's book, Ordeal by Fire, the Civil War and Reconstruction, published by Knopf, New York, in 1982. He writes on page 249, and I quote, On the other hand, the fraternization between Johnny Reb and Billy Yank has become legendary speaking the same language, sharing a common history and many aspects of a common culture, calling each other, in some cases literally, brother or cousin. Yanks and Rebs sometimes stacked muskets during quiet times and swapped tobacco, scarce in the north, for coffee, almost unobtainable in the south, played cards and mutually cursed their officers or the politicians who had caused the war. A typical incident occurred on July 4 in a patch of blackberries between the picket lines near Malvern Hill. 
Our boys and the Yanks made a bargain not to fire at each other, a southern private wrote, and went out in the field, leaving one man on each post of the arms, and gathered berries together and talked over the fight, traded tobacco and coffee, and exchanged newspapers as peacefully and kindly as if they had not been engaged for the last seven days in butchering each other. Such incidents, and there were many, symbolize the irony and tragedy of civil war. One more episode like that. This was in the Battle of Spotsylvania, one of the bloodiest battles of the war. Let me read a little bit about the war to give you the context of this fraternization. I quote from page 419, While this was going on, the Union Sixth Corps assaulted the Confederate trenches a few hundred yards down the west side of the salient. Here was the famous bloody angle, where some of the most savage fighting of the war took place. Blue and gray slugged it out for endless hours in the rain. Fighting madness turned men into killing machines. Individual soldiers would leap up onto the parapets of the trenches and fire down into them as fast as comrades could pass loaded rifles up to them. When one was shot down, another would jump up to take his place. Killed and wounded men lay in the trenches three deep, where some of them were trampled entirely under the muck of mud and blood. The intensity of firing blasted trees and logs into splinters. Many balls cut down one oak nearly two feet thick. I never expect to be fully believed when I tell what I saw of the horrors of Spotsylvania, wrote an officer in the Sixth Corps, because I should be loath to believe it myself were the case reversed. All day and through half the night, the Confederates grimly held these trenches while Lee's engineers worked desperately to complete a new line a mile to the rear. When the fighting finally stopped after midnight, and the rebels abandoned the mule shoe, the Federals had suffered 7,000 casualties, and the Confederates nearly as many, most of them along a quarter mile of trenches. Now, let me skip just a few sentences uh, down. The uh, fighting, the total fighting, by the way, at that battle uh, came to 18,000 Union men and 11,000 Confederates. But, to continue, during one of the lulls, a Union staff officer reflected on the fraternization between pickets of the two armies. These men are incomprehensible. Now standing from daylight to dark, killing and wounding each other by thousands, and now making jokes and exchanging newspapers. The great staples of conversation are the size and quality of rations, the marches they have made, and the regiments they have fought against. All sense of personal spite is sunk in the immensity of the contest. Unquote. Now that was one of the fiercest most bitterly fought battles of the war, and yet you had that kind of fraternization. You see, history now is written 
and politics is acted out in terms of one of the most vicious doctrines ever devised by the mind of man, the conflict of interest theory. It presupposes that there is an ultimate conflict of interest between various classes, various races, various segments of society, between male and female, the older generation and the younger. And the result is a bitterly evil rewriting of history and politics and a totally different way of behavior on the part of all. If we go back in history, we will find something very different. But history today is too extensively written in terms of the conflict of interest theory. I'm going to turn to a radically different book now to give you an idea of what history was often like. This is a book that was written in, or published first in 1965, published by Exposition Press, which is a press that uh, publishes books for people who are anxious to publish their own. And in this case, it's a family saga by Michael Charnovsky, and the title is Jewish Life in the Ukraine. I delight in books like this because they give us some of the finest history you can get. Unsophisticated, uncomplicated with alien theories and giving us history as it actually has been lived. This book in particular was a delight to me. Well, the... Episodes in it are a delight, so I'm going to read a little more than I should to get to my point. Uh, the author is uh, describing how one of the family, Simcha, had gone for geese for the Passover. And as he was coming home in the cold with a sleigh and horses on ice, to his great astonishment, the horses slowed down almost to a standstill. Then he saw the glittering eyes of a pack of wolves straight ahead by the road. Simcha realized the dangerous situation and without losing a minute of time, took the whip in his hand and let it fall on the horses. He knew his life was at stake, but there was only one way to get through, fast, faster than the wolves could run. And calling the horses by their names, Speeder and Save, he continued whipping them, jerking the lines and calling for more speed. The horses, too, realized the danger and started in a lightning gallop. But on came the rush of the wolves. Simcha picked up a goose and tossed it to the wolves, then a second, a third, a fourth, until there were no more geese left. But one wolf still came after the sleigh. With one big jump, the wolf was on the sleigh with rage and a wide-open mouth. He came right at Simcha. Without thought or time loss, Simcha rammed his heavy glove-covered hand into the mouth of the wolf and pushed it down deep, deep into the throat. He held the head tight with the other hand, and when he felt the wolf was dead, he pulled his hand out full of blood. 
Then Simcha fell into his seat unconscious. When the horses arrived at the house, they made known their arrival. Vasil and Mulkik were waiting up, and they rushed out with lamp and lantern. They called for help, and Simcha was carried into the house and laid on his bed. The horses were soaking wet. Vasil took care of them. When Simcha came to and opened his eyes, he sat up and told the story while Molka, his father, and his mother were weeping. The next day, when the story was told to the peasants, they all went to church, rang the bells, and held mass to thank God that he had spared their only Jew, Simcha. Then they started to bring geese and ducks to Molke for Passover. Well, another story like that. Avram Gershon and his family were the only Jews living in Askovitz. They ran the only business in the village for many years. The peasants and their families loved them for the kind, the kind things Avram Gershon did for them. So Avram Gershon was always remembered by the peasants and their families, even at Sunday Mass. They seldom forgot to pray for their Jewish family, asking God to keep them well so they could continue to help the village people. Askovitz was not the only village where the people loved Avram Gershon. All through the towns and villages he was loved, admired, and respected. In the towns where Jews lived, he was a steady donor to the synagogues, to the bathhouse, and to poor and sick people. The rabbis from other towns used to come to see him for all kinds of donation. When a rabbi came, he was received with great honor and never went away empty-handed. Now, mind you, this is a Jewish autobiography. It's not written by a Russian propagandist. And he's describing, without any attempt at presenting a case for anything, life as he knew it in old Russia. Now, another <clears throat> item about this same man, uh, a relative. There were the friendliest of feelings between the peasants and Avram Gershon and his family. Whenever there was a wedding or a birthday celebration, the Jewish family was invited and had to attend, for this was the greatest honor for them. And the peasants showed their appreciation by making them the honored guests, by having them dance with the bride or the groom, by asking them to speak to all the guests about this great event. Avram Gershon and his son Simcha always had something good to tell them, some bit of advice, and for weeks, months, and years, the peasants would remember what had been said at their wedding and would always repeat the words. In fact, they were sure that whatever Avram Gershon or Simcha said would come true, and it often did. When Avram Gershon got older and more tired and could not attend the weddings and parties, Simcha and his wife Molke had to do the honors. Simcha also went to the funerals and spoke about the dead. This was a special privilege, for the peasants did not allow anyone outside of a priest to perform the religious ceremonies, but it became a regular procedure for Simcha to speak and he did it for a long while before the priest took over. Now, one more little item. 
when uh, Abram Gershon became ill, the peasants of Askovitz went daily to church to pray for his recovery, and the townspeople in Warshilakova went to the synagogue daily and prayed to God to spare him and give him back his health. And although people from cities and towns miles and miles away traveled days and brought rabbis with them to see Avram Gershom talk to him and pray for him, still nothing helped. Doctor after doctor proclaimed that he alone could help himself, that he should start eating. But Avram Gershom told the rabbis and his son that his place with his wife Rivka, and he died from weakness. His funeral was a demonstration of love, respect, and devotion. From all the villages, men, women, and children walked after the black draped wagon to the town of Warshilakova, only to meet all the people of that town gathered to join the procession to the synagogue. There his body was taken inside. Rabbis from many towns and cities were there to pay their last respects. The closed arcs of the Torahs were all open, the lights were all on, and in a deep quietness the sun walked to the pulpit. In a deep voice filled with grief, tears running down from his eyes, he said a Kaddish, and with him big and small Jew and Gentile wept. Avram Gershon was carried by men to the cemetery, and he was buried. Now, I could go on to read more about this. The author doesn't hesitate to give the facts of the pogroms that were ordered from the top and from the top carried out. But he gives an honest account of life in the rural Ukraine. It's the kind of story you don't read normally because all we are interested in now is the conflict of interests, especially since Darwin. This has become the ruling premise. It began in its formal origins with Hegel. Darwin applied the thinking of Hegel to biology. Now it is applied, of course, to politics and has been for many years. Otto Scott, in his exceptionally fine book, The Secret Six, deals with its implications in politics and the life of this country. It's a story of John Brown, the abolitionist movement, and the forces which led to the war between North and South. And as Otto Scott has pointed out more than once, we were the only country in the last century to go to war over the issue of slavery. Everywhere else, it was peaceably abolished. But we left a fearful harvest because of that conflict of interest theory. And it was the abolitionists who promoted this because they were transcendentalists who had been nurtured on Hegelian philosophy, and they believed that only conflict could solve problems. And today we live 
in this country and all over the world in terms of the politics of conflict so that it's perpetual war between every group and there is no resolution because one conflict leads only to another. This is why the war against humanism is so important. We have to replace humanism with a Christian faith, with a biblical faith that asserts the ultimate harmony of interests. Only so can we have a world order in which there is any peace. Now to another subject. One of the interesting books of late was a murder mystery, so to speak. Very true story. The Murder of Napoleon by Ben Weider, W-E-I-D-E-R, and David Hapgood. Published for 1495 by Congdon, C-O-N-G-D-O-N, and Lattice, L-A-T-T-E-S, in New York in 1982. The book is about a man who set out to study the death of Napoleon. A Swedish doctor, Dr. Sten Forshevud, an expert on poisons. In studying the life of Napoleon, he began to realize that the symptoms that Napoleon manifested before his death were not those of stomach cancer, but of arsenic poisoning. And he began to study the matter. It led him to quite a detective uh, effort to trace evidences of murder. With modern technology, he was able, on getting some hairs from Napoleon's head cut at the time of his death, to demonstrate that there was a very high concentration of arsenic in the hair. And Napoleon had very obviously, over a period of time, been systematically poisoned. Napoleon himself suspected it. I'll let you read the book, if you are interested, to find out who did it. <laughs> it was not the English, by the way. It was the French a representative of the Bourbon monarchy uh, who uh, was there to ensure that Napoleon did not return to France. It's a very interesting book. Let me say that Napoleon needs a book dealing with the development of his thinking. On one or two occasions, not in the easy chairs, but in the past two, three years, I've discussed this before one or two groups. But Napoleon began as a dedicated revolutionist, very much given to the Enlightenment principles that led to the French Revolution. But step by step, the course of events in the Revolution began to trouble him man obviously did not seem to be naturally good. After all, the reign of terror was evidence of that. Then when 
Napoleon embarked upon his Egyptian campaign for the so-called French Republic, there he saw the depravity of that country, and it completely disillusioned him concerning man. And that was the end of his humanism. The tragedy of Napoleon was that he had nothing to replace it. He recognized the bankruptcy of the revolutionary regime, of the humanism of the day. He took over power because there was no one else to take it. Then he actually considered reestablishing the church in its old privileges because he felt the need for some kind of rationale for the social order. He was dissuaded from reestablishing the church and its ancient privileges because those around him warned him that it would be too radical a step for the uh, populace to take. However, to a degree that the revolution had never dreamed of, Napoleon did restore a great many things to the church, although he did maintain the ascendancy of his state over the church. Napoleon has never had the kind of serious treatment he deserves. He has been hated by liberals and humanists because, in a sense, they feel he betrayed the revolution. Marx regarded the greatest evil that could happen to any revolution as Bonapartism, the military taking over. Although Marx was unwilling to consider the fact that uh, the alternative was anarchy, and Bonaparte took over something that was collapsing. In a sense, he saved the revolution from total collapse and gave it some uh, extended life in a different fashion. But Napoleon faced the problem that very few are, uh, are willing to face. Humanism cannot give a foundation for a social order. He had only stopgap solutions to that. But at least Napoleon was ready to recognize that a problem exists. However unwillingly, he knew that society has religious foundations, and when you destroy those, you are destroying society. Well, this leads us to another subject of like character and of very great imp importance for us today. In the National Review for August 20, 1982, there is a very important article by L. H. Gann, G. A. N. N., and M. S. Bernstam, B. E. R. N. S. T. A. M. Soviet Vulnerabilities. Well, the article is a very important one because it recognizes that the Soviet regime is near internal collapse. 
It is suffering from an intellectual and an economic bankruptcy. Its demography has been shattered by tremendous disasters, the liquidation of workers and peasants, forced industrialization, collectivization of agriculture, the purges, gulag, and so on. Man-made famines without number. Incidentally, he lists man-made famines for 1918 to 20, 1921 to 22, 1924 to 25, 1932 through 34, 1946 through 48. Then he goes, they go on to say, the authors, and I quote, the Soviet Union is also experiencing a striking rise in its general mortality rate. The crude death rate, for instance, has increased one and a half times over the last 15 years. Still more serious, perhaps, is the steep rise in mortality among men between ages of 25 and 45. Even some official Soviet demographers now explain this disaster in terms of hardships and malnutrition suffered during previous decades of Soviet rule, but no end is in sight. Life expectancy at birth is on the decline, especially among males. Fertility is also on the decline. In five-sixths of the Soviet Union's territory, the fertility rate now stands below the net rate of uh, the rate of net reproduction. They go on to say that the fertility rate is, for the most part, high only among young Muslim women. So that, as I have pointed out on other occasions and in the Chalcedon Report, the Soviet Union, after 1985, will have an army made up of draftees who are predominantly Muslim. And for them, that's a frightening fact. The authors go on to say, and I quote, Part of the problem is that contraceptives are hardly used in the Soviet Union. So uh, large numbers of women resort to induced abortion. There are more than four induced abortions per birth or 20 million abortions a year in the Soviet Union. Statisticians calculate that the average Soviet woman has 9.6 induced abortions in her lifetime. This figure, once again, does not apply to most Muslim women. Let me add parenthetically, one man on our mailing list who has been in the Soviet Union repeatedly in recent years on uh, federal business commented to me when I discussed the fertility rate in the Soviet Union to him, with him that he had only seen two pregnant women on his last trip. So he was ready to believe that uh, there is a declining birth rate. To continue reading from this article, between the rising mortality rate and the declining fertility rate, it is projected that during the next several decades, the western part of the Soviet Union will suffer an ever-increasing shortage of young men and women to work 
on the farms and in the factories, especially in the Russian Federal Republic, which accounts for 60% of the Soviet Union's GNP. Oswald Spengler once predicted that the communist revolution would do for the Russians what the barbarian conquest supposedly did for the ancient Romans, that is, wipe them out. His prophecy, improbable at the time, may yet become reality. Well, he says that the European element in the Soviet Union hates the regime and wants freedom, but the Muslim area wants a pan-Muslim socialism and is looking forward to that. Then the authors go on to say that the regime is extremely weak internally. Now, let me quote from these uh, authors again. None of these weaknesses, and I won't go into the uh, catalog of uh, weaknesses he describes, will endanger the regime as long as the party leadership retains its cohesion. As Al Capone once said of Mussolini, he'll be all right as long as he can keep the boys in line. But the party might not stay united forever. After Brezhnev's departure, for instance, the battle for succession could bring about a major crisis, one which American policymakers should ponder in advance. The CPSU, the Communist Party, has become a mass party with a membership of over 17 million. Something like two-thirds of these men and women joined without any deep sense of commitment. To them, membership means a better chance for promotion and a job superior educational opportunities for their children, etc. The remainder, perhaps six million in all, are genuine communists. Even this remnant, however, has ideological problems. The old fervor is long gone. Careerism and opportunism, the communists tell us themselves, are on the rise. In all probability, something like one-half the convinced communists would gladly accept a communism with a human face. The system then depends on something like three million hardliners, just over one percent of the population. Then, skipping down a ways, from the CPSU standpoint, Poland has provided a dangerous precedent. For the first time since Eastern Europe was incorporated into the Soviet Empire, an Eastern Bloc country's Communist Party has collapsed, at least temporarily, and the army has stepped in to restore order. Now they go on to say that the army is not, of course, an independent power. It's under the direction of the Soviet Union. But what is to prevent the same kind of crisis from occurring in the Soviet Union, and they say, might not a Red Army regime be even more dangerous than its predecessor, that is to us? Would a ruling Red Army embody the aggressive and reactionary forces of great Russian chauvinism? They go on then to say such apprehensions rest on serious oversimplifications. 
Military rule, whatever its limitations, would be more popular among the Russian masses than ruled by a party whose economic record has dishonored the ideals of socialism in Russia to a greater extent than they have been discredited in Western Europe. The Red Army, moreover, could not simply serve as an instrument of great Russian chauvinism. The major part of the Red Army's officer corps, and perhaps even more important of its non-commissioned officers, are Ukrainians and Belarusians. A high proportion of long-service men come from the Muslim part of Soviet Central Asia and from the small nations of the Caucasus. No one, of course, can predict the future. But there are straws in the wind. The old confidence in Marxism-Leninism is waning both in Eastern Europe and within the Soviet Union itself. Traditional creeds, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, and Buddhist, are gaining new adherents. Marxism-Leninism as a philosophical system is in decay. Its beliefs are no longer taken seriously by the masses. To rephrase Lenin, military rule may perhaps turn out to be both the highest stage of communism and its last. Very important article. And I think there is more than a little truth to it. Now, very briefly, uh, I'd like to comment on a Scott report of some time ago that uh, was sent to me by a newspaper man on our mailing list. This Scott report dealt with Soviet preparations for a 1983 war. And according to Scott, Reagan, in his trip to Western Europe, warned the leaders of NATO countries that while Soviet leaders talk peace and nuclear disarmament, they are preparing to cut off Western Europe's lifeline from the oil-rich Middle East. And... It spoke of evidence of a major Soviet military thrust from newly established bases in Afghanistan through Pakistan to the Indian Ocean in the April-June period of 1983. Now, Reagan, after giving this warning, came back and gave the Soviet Union one of the most important weapons of war, which is food. So, so much for his integrity. However, what the Soviet Union may do in this situation, and I believe they have been planning such a venture for a long, long time, is all the same dependent on what happens, weather-wise and in other ways, within the Soviet Union, between now and next spring. And I'm less afraid of the Soviet Union than what we do in Washington to keep the Soviet Union alive and to try to make it strong. And how we ourselves are financing it and financing our enemies here. Howard Phillips, in the Conservative Manifesto for August, uh, speaks of the fact that the Reagan administration has become an instrument of liberal objectives. 
It has pursued detente with the left in this country in domestic uh, matters as well now as in foreign affairs. Moreover, he cites his experience with a matter of defunding the left, and I quote, while in Santa Monica for my press conference on the subject of federal funding to groups allied with Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda, I had opportunity to visit with California uh, TCC leaders, Carl Davis, Ray Maloney, and Ron Zielinski. By the way, Ron Zielinski is a good Chalcedon friend, as well as Howard Phillips. Our press conference was highlighted not merely by television cameras from all three local major networks, as well as representatives of the Los Angeles Times and the CBS and NBC radio outlets, but by the presence of several representatives of Tom Hayden's political organization, who are there to denounce my criticism of Hayden. Their criticism taking the form of a virulent counter-press release. Divine Providence intervened on my behalf when, upon challenge from the L.A. Times reporter about the validity of the connection between the groups to which I alluded and Tom Hayden's political activities, I was able to point out by virtue of her biography held in my hand, coincidentally, that one of the people present had not only worked in Tom Hayden's unsuccessful 1976 Senate campaign, but had been in London in the early 1970s as an active opponent of the Vietnam War in efforts allied with those of Jane Fonda. In addition to condemning the assignment of more than $2,655,076.56 in federal funds to Hayden and Fonda-allied groups, I expressed grave concern over the policy of the Reagan administration to continue funding political activist groups as set forth in the recent memorandum by David Stockman. I spelled out in detail steps which could be taken by President Reagan and his appointees to get this problem under control. Another item from the Conservative Manifesto, which I encourage all of you to get by supporting the Conservative Caucus. At our 8 a.m. meeting today, Ed Fulner, Paul Wyrick, Terry Dolan, Richard Vigory, and I deeply lamented President Reagan's incredible decision to propose an increase in the national debt ceiling to more than one and a quarter trillion dollars, a $340 billion boost since he took office. When President Reagan took office, the ceiling was $935 billion. By this action, the President has reconfirmed his determination to propose massive budget deficits rather than to risk the wrath of Congress and the media by proposing any real cuts in non-defense spending. This was the President's last chance to forestall the economic stagnation and hyperinflation, which are the inevitable consequences of his uh, rhetorically militant 
but substantively weak economic program. Well, we have just seen in the, this week the passage of the President's tax bill, and we've seen the price of gold and the stock market react to it. They know that massive inflation is clearly on the way. And this from the man who was critical of the Carter deficits. It tells you what's happening in Washington. Now to something else of more than a little interest. Some of you may have read about Wayne Kreitz, the Missouri farmer who raided a bankrupt grain elevator to retrieve his soybeans. This, the courts held, was a criminal offense, but it made him a hero to farmers who had had their grain padlocked while the justice system was going to take forever to unravel a bankruptcy. The courts at no time consider in such cases like this the fact that these farmers are going to be wiped out before they ever get their grain back. Well, the case is not yet over. It is under appeal. It has put this man very much on the battlefront. People have sent him a, about $94,000 to help with the legal fees. It'll take a lot more than that before this is over. But here we have a man, a farmer, who has stood up to federal marshals and gone to jail because he felt that justice was not to be found in the courts and that he had a right to stand up and defend his property. This is from the Farm Journal for August 1982, by the way. He is now fighting a judgment of 287000 plus possible fines of 1500 a day issued by the bankruptcy judge who jailed him. Well... We need to be in prayer for this man and to thank God for men like him. By the way, other farmers were involved in this raid, and Wayne Kreitz has refused to reveal their names. This is the kind of incident that lets us know that there are men out there very much like the men who made this country possible in the beginning. And we need to be very grateful for Wayne Kreitz. Now, there are some other things here that I'd like to share with you. The August 1982 Science Digest has a couple of very important articles. One by Joanne Silburner is Cheating in the Labs, and it's a grim account 
the kind of thing that has been written about before, but nothing has ever come of it. What he describes, or she describes in this article, is the fact that scientists are faking data and the, resu and the results of experiments. And for the public, for drug companies and other scientists, the results can at times be deadly. Joanne Silberner very clearly reveals that there are no ethics left in the scientific community by and large. Nothing is being done about it. A subcommittee of Congress is investigating frauds in biomedical research. But nothing will come of that, perhaps some legislation. But when you don't have character in a people, nothing will make any difference. In a book about the Soviet Union I'm reading now, the author describes writing a letter of complaint about the most flagrant corruption imaginable on the local level. When the investigating committee arrives, what the author quickly finds out is that the investigators are even more corrupt than those whom they are sent to investigate. And so he realizes that there is no hope in the Soviet Union. Well, it's the same thing here. Unless we begin to have more character on the ground level and on the upper levels of our national life, nothing in the way of legislation is going to change fraud in the laboratories. There's another article in this issue, and the title is 21st Century Crime Stoppers by Richard Conniff. C-O-N-N-I-F-F. -F. This is a frightening article. Let me read just uh, something that uh, summarizes it. The whole point of this article is that uh, they believe through psychological and other kinds of testing they are going to be able to determine before long who the potential criminal is. So let's stop crime before it occurs. Predicting crime. I quote, Should a criminal be jailed because of crimes he might commit in the future? This controversial idea called selective incapacitation has as its goal prevention, not punishment or even rehabilitation. If John Smith is likely to commit 15 muggings, avoiding them may be worth the cost of imprisoning him. Science, some feel, faces the major challenge of providing a way to determine how many crimes John Smith is likely to commit. Judges now make that determination by instinct on in the person's record. Peter Greenwood of Rand Corporation, on the other hand, suggests two types of research. One develops statistical profiles of many criminals' arrest histories. The other uses self-reports in which convicts anonymously provide data on their own criminal activities. Greenwood believes such research can lead to a reliable estimate of the number of crimes John Smith might commit annually. 
American Civil Liberties Union lawyer David Landau disagrees. Almost all social science studies show that you cannot predict future criminality with any accuracy, he warns. There is also con a constitutional objection. You're talking about punishing people for crimes they haven't committed. Although he has certain uh, reservations, Alfred Bloomstein, who was the chairman of a National Academy of Sciences panel on deterrence, counters with a comparison. The idea of imposing a stiff jail sentence or even the death penalty as a deterrent to other would-be criminals is now widely accepted. Yet, he says, this amounts to punishing the criminal for other people's future crimes, and nobody knows how well it works. In many respects, says Bloomstein, I feel more comfortable with the idea of putting people in jail for their own future crimes rather than for other people's crimes. The author adds the note. Most people would probably agree. Well, to sentence people to jail or to death, for crimes they have not committed, but which a social scientist says they may commit, is perhaps as insane and dangerous a notion as has ever been propounded in this country. Moreover, what is to prevent them from broadening the definition of crime as it has been in the Soviet Union? We already have several books that describe the new right as fascist and evil. What's to prevent them from saying that everyone who is a conservative is a criminal? Now, I think it's ironic that in the Science Digest, this is August 1982, $2 a copy, you have an article that deals with the dishonesty in the sciences, cheating in the lab, fraudulent research. And then you have a presentation that says, with research we will be able to predict who is a criminal. Now, how are we to know that they will be any more honest in that research, granting them the unlikely possibility that this can be done. What's to make them more honest there than they are anywhere else? And especially since this is going to be through the National Academy of Sciences, a political agency, the prospects of such a thing are nightmarish. In fact, it is nightmarish that it is even being seriously considered, that it is the object of research, and that a serious publication would publish anything about it. Well, our time is running out, but I'd like to call attention to uh, one or two things. First of all, we do have a very fine group in uh, Virginia, just outside of Washington in Alexandria, that is doing some excellent research. Western Gold, G-O-A-L-S. 
and the chairman is Congressman Larry P. McDonald. The advisory board includes men like Phil Crane, Henry Hazlitt, Dr. Mildred Jefferson, Dr. Tony Kubek, and, and a good many others, Dr. Hans Senholtz, General Singlaub, Dan Smoot, Congressman Bob's, uh, Bob Stump, Dr. Edward Teller, and others. I'd like to refer to two of their books just to tell you about them. The War Called Peace, the Soviet Peace Offensive, which goes into the uh, worldwide anti-nuclear demonstrations and their Marxist origins. It's an excellent study. It's available at $5 a copy from Western Goals, 309A Cameron Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. And also their uh, book on the underground, the National Lawyers Guild, and uh, related activities, Outlaws of America, the Weather Underground Organization. This is available also from the same address at $5 a copy. These are both excellent in demonstrating what is happening today, and I commend them to you. Well, our time is just about up. I have some things I'd like to share with you, but let me just refer to one that uh, you can get and read. This is from the August 1982 Reason magazine. And it's by Donald Fetter, F-E-D-E-R, Benito and Franklin, on the similarity between Mussolini's fascism and Roosevelt's New Dealism. What we are dealing with in this country today is a form of fascism. The article is excellent. Well, I'll be with you again in our next Easy Chair in a couple of weeks, and I have a number of things that I am looking forward to sharing with you. I do enjoy these sessions, and I do enjoy the comments that you send in. It's a pleasure to uh, take this time and share some of my thinking and my reading with you. Thank you, and God bless you.